Good morning, beautiful people. Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. My name is Sansara Taylor, and I, and I am honored to be your guest host here today on the Michael Slate Show on behalf of Michael. We've got a great show for you today. Later in the hour, we're going to be playing part one of a very significant interview with Raymond Lada, who has dug deep into the environmental crisis facing humanity, driven by this imperialist, capitalist imperialist system that rules over us. And he examines deeply in a new piece at Revcom.us the reality that the much-touted Biden infrastructure bill that is supposedly making progress finally at long last on the climate catastrophe that we face is not a step in the right direction. It is actually part of furthering the harm that this system is doing, accelerating the destruction of our planet, the reliance on fossil fuels, the warming of the Earth's ecosystems, and so much more. Raymond Lada digs into this. He brings the facts. It's going to be, um, I believe we'll play this interview over the course of three weeks. It's, it's going to be in uh, three installments, and it's very important. So we'll start part one of this later in the hour. Before that, we're going to hear about a very exciting new development out of Mexico. The Revolutionary Communist Organization of Mexico has published a new book, called La Esperanza Revolucionario, Revolutionary Hope. New possibilities are opening up for liberatory revolution in the midst of acute crises and upheaval of the capitalist system. It is urgent to organize the fight for revolution. So this is a new book that is published in English and Spanish at revcom.us. And I'm going to bring you a segment that was put together by Lenny Wolf who is a regular contributor to the RNL, the Revolution Nothing Less show. He did this segment for the Revolution Nothing Less show, getting into the importance, the significance of this new work coming out of Mexico and our internationalist responsibilities here. And I know there are many people listening now around the country and around this city who have deep ties to Mexico. It's important to dig into this work to spread this to communities here and on the other side of the border. And it's important to note that the revolution that we need recognizes that that border, that blood-soaked border between the U.S. and Mexico is not sacred. It was forged through the theft of land and murderous war. So it is not sacred. And the process of revolution in this country and south of the border are deeply intertwined. We're going to bookend this segment from Lenny Wolf with two different excerpts from the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian, who is also the architect of the new communism. And one of the hallmarks of his new communism is the profound internationalism of this. So we're going to hear a little bit about this internationalism in a short excerpt that precedes Lenny Wolf of a presentation that Bob Avakian gave at a major dialogue he held with Cornell West on revolution and religion. And then after we hear from Lenny Wolf, we're, we're going to go to a Q&A that was held with Bob Avakian after a major speech he gave in 2018, where somebody asked him, after the revolution, will the U.S. still treat Mexico like its quote-unquote backyard, which is how the imperialist rulers of this country have treated Mexico for generations? Uh, so Bob Avakian gives a very profound answer to that, and these these pieces work really well together. So that'll be the middle of the middle of the show. Actually, the bulk of the show. But before we get there, I want to take just a few minutes to speak frankly about 
Lindsey Graham, that fascist Trump-supporting senator who this past week introduced a federal 15-week ban on abortion. This ban on abortion would trump state abortion laws. So it would mean that even in places where people overwhelmingly support abortion rights, places like California, New York, other, other states that support abortion rights deeply, would have to ban, comply with the federal law and ban abortion at 15 weeks. Women would be forced to have children against their will after that point. Women who develop complications, many fetal anomalies can't be detected until after 15 weeks, would be forced to carry dangerous and fatally flawed pregnancies. Already we see this happening across this country. This is a a horrifying prospect. And yet, the big thing that we're hearing about this, and this is what I want to call out, the big thing that we're hearing about this in the media, from Democratic Party leaders and strategists, from the so-called leaders of the so-called pro-choice movements, the mainstream movements of of various kinds, um, who claim to champion the rights of women, the main thing that we are hearing is that this will be really good for the Democrats in the midterms. You see, they look at this and they look at the fact that banning abortion and forcing women to have children against their will is deeply unpopular. And they say, okay, well, we can ride this outrage to try to win the midterm elections, which everybody thought was going to be a whomping for the Democrats. But now they might have a foothold because women are furious at their rights and their lives being endangered in this way. Now, I want to say, and you need to hear this, this is wrong. This is wrong, not just because it is unlikely that this will be enough to enable the Democrats to come from behind and, and, and hold on to and, and win a bigger majority in the Congress and win a majority in the Senate and come back and codify abortion rights nationwide. It's wrong, not only because that is really an unlikely scenario, it is even more profoundly wrong because it's the wrong question. It is part of the bourgeois electoral brainwash that trains you to think of everything that happens in this country and process it through the lens of whether it will help the Democrats or the Republicans, how it can be used and what is possible within the confines of and on the terms of this system's elections. And what that erases is the actual reality of what this means, the real question, which is not will it help the Democrats or the Republicans. The real question is what does this mean for women's lives? and the future and the prospects and the rights of girls across this country. I want you to remember how you felt on June 24th, 2022, the day that the U.S. Supreme Court eviscerated the constitutional protection for women's right to abortion. I want you to remember remember how you felt. The outrage, the shock, the terror, the fury. Women across this country were sobbing. People poured into the streets. People were curled up in fetal positions in their couches listening to the news on the TV. People were remembering in horror the grandmothers and other dear friends whose lives were lost to botched illegal 
abortions more than 50 years ago, their deaths shrouded in shame and silence. People were remembering this and people were thinking of, with horror and dread about the threat that is now looming over every single girl child born in this country, that she may not have the right to her own body and her own reproductive decisions. That is what was codified. That is what was made possible by that ruling. And people were right to be outraged. And this past week, what happened was not a misstep by the Republicans. It'll help the Democrats and we should get excited about it. What happened this last week was an unprecedented leap in this assault on the rights and lives of women. Before June 24th, it would have been impossible to introduce federal legislation to ban abortion. It would have been impossible. It would have been unthinkable. And now this is the new normal. And this has been the dynamic that has been facilitated through that bourgeois electoral brainwash, through the notion that everything should be processed by and your outrage and your fury at the crimes being committed against women and others should be channeled into supporting the Democrats in the elections. This is what gets normalized. This is the dynamic that has facilitated over decades the dynamic where yesterday's outrage becomes today's compromise position and tomorrow's limit of what can be imagined. Today, we are contemplating a federal ban on abortion and saying, oh, well, maybe this can work for the Democrats. No, this is normalizing atrocity. This is moving the goalpost and continuing to funnel your outrage into supporting these Democrats and working in these elections will only further this horror. The only way this can be stopped is by people stepping outside that dynamic and rising up in furious, mass, unrelenting struggle to say, no, women are not incubators. Fetuses are not babies and abortion is not murder. And these Christian fascists need to get their hands off the bodies and the lives of women and their futures. And that's going to take struggle. That's going to take stepping into the streets. That's going to take putting it on the line. That's going to take rising up. That's how the right to abortion was won. That's how every right for the oppressed has been won. And that's the only way this right will be defended and won back. And ultimately, let's be real, sisters and brothers and beautiful people. Let's be real. Defeating these Christian fascist theocrats who have now captured the Supreme Court who have captured the Republican Party, who are dominating state houses across this country, who have fully banned abortion in 13 states, who right now are shattering the lives of women and girls through forced motherhood, who right now are endangering women's lives by compelling hospitals to deny necessary medical treatment to women if they happen to be pregnant, cancer treatment denied if it might endanger a fetus's life, miscarriage management denied, Women sent home to bleed out and risk infection and even death because hospitals refuse to provide the abortions they need to safely finish their miscarriages. All of this is already going on. Defeating all of this and preventing this from becoming the future for all women everywhere with reverberations across the world, this is going to take ultimately making a revolution, getting rid of the system that has allowed these fascists to claw their way into power, getting rid of this system that has the patriarchal domination of women by men woven into its foundation and its fabric. It is going to take breaking the chains and unleashing the fury of women as a mighty force, a driving force in making this revolution. And we are living in a rare time, sisters and brothers, when a revolution is actually possible. Because of the very nature, the very momentum, the very level of crisis this system is in that has driven 
these fascists, that has given rise to these fascists clawing their way into power, threatening women's lives in this way, and so much more. The coup attempt last January 6th, the rigging of elections, the building up of a violent social base ready to steal any election they lose, all of this and more, the MAGA white supremacy, all of this ripping apart the norms that have held this country together for so long is part of what makes revolution possible in this time. But we've got to get organized. We've got to get serious about it. We've got to break out of the bourgeois electoral brainwash. We've got to break out of the terms of this system and stop being played. We have to get serious about what it will really take to bring this system down and bring a better future, a better society into being where women and girls and differently gendered people are treated as full human beings in law and in deed, in the culture and in the relations among people. And that is possible. So I want to point you to a very important work that I've promoted before. I know Michael has promoted it. It's called Something Terrible or Something Truly Emancipating, Profound Crisis, Deepening Divisions, The Looming Possibility of Civil War, and the Revolution that is Urgently Needed. This is a necessary foundation and a basic roadmap by Bob Avakian, revolutionary leader, architect of the new communism. It is available at revcom.us. And part of fighting this for real, for those who see the need for revolution and are getting organized for that, as well as for others who are not yet convinced of that, but do not want to see women enslaved by forced motherhood, there is a need for mass struggle and protest. So I want to let you know about the movement and organization Rise Up for Abortion Rights at riseupforabortionrights.org, which we'll be announcing very soon plans for days of action and other struggle to take this on, uniting people from many different diverse perspectives. So with that, as a few words to get us started, let us dive in now. Let us go to the first excerpt from Bob Avakian on internationalism. This will be followed by Lenny Wolf talking about this new book from the Revolutionary Communists of Mexico. Um, then we'll hear again from Bob Avakian, and I'll come back after that. And we need an orientation or morality and a movement that is internationalist, that proceeds on the understanding that the whole world comes first, not America. And that the fundamental goal, the fundamental and ultimate goal is the emancipation of all humanity. What we need is not striving to get ours on the terms and conditions of this system that feeds on the flesh of billions of people throughout the world. Now, if you think I'm exaggerating, let me just cite one example. Many of the clothes we wear and that hang in the closet or whatever come from the country in Asia, Bangladesh. People, including mainly women and many children, are working under those, the most brutal conditions to produce those clothes. And recently, within the last year, the factories they're working in where there are no safety regulations, no health considerations, the factories they're working in collapsed, killing large numbers of these women. And then there was a fire when they were, and the people working were locked inside the plant 
while the fire raged. These are the conditions under which the things that this system accumulates are produced all over the world. We don't need to be any part of that. Millions of children in Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, and Asia die every year from starvation and diseases that could be prevented. Devastation from Ebola and the millions killed by AIDS in Africa is fundamentally because of the legacy of colonialism and slavery and continuing domination by imperialism above all U.S. capitalism imperialism. What we need is not a fight to bring yet more brutality, devastation, agony, and heartbreak to the half of humanity that is female and to humanity as a whole in the name of religious fundamentalism, Christian, Islamic, or other, or in the name of a capitalist democracy and a free world that in fact rests and thrives on exploitation and oppression, slaughter and destruction of people in the environment. These cannot be the only choices for humanity. We need a fight to emancipate humanity from all this. Around the world, there are people and organizations taking up and applying the new communism, often striving in extremely difficult conditions to make revolution. These forces are small in number, but they are gigantic in heart for the people and in ambition for humanity's emancipation. And we share with them the same hopes and aspirations, the same science. Indeed, you could say we share the same blood. This week, the website Revcom.us posted the new book, La Esperanza Revolucionaria or in English, Revolutionary Hope. This book comes from the Revolutionary Communist Organization of Mexico, or OCR. The book announces its analysis and its intentions in the subtitle, New Possibilities Are Opening Up for Liberatory Revolution in the Midst of Acute Crises and Upheavals of the Capitalist System. It is urgent to organize the fight for revolution. And Revolutionary Hope goes on to make a basic analysis of the contradictions ripping Mexican society apart within the context of the larger world situation. It shows the fault lines of vulnerability within the system, and it points to the forces around which a movement for an actual revolution in Mexico could be built. And it lays out some of the strategic ways for doing that. The OCR has been advocating for and calling on people to get organized for revolution against this system for a number of years. But this new book represents a very significant advance along that road. And think about that for a minute. Think about what it could mean if a force for revolution in Mexico 
began to gather and grow. Mexico is a society ripped apart by violence. Violence from the state, violence from the drug cartels, violence among different sections of the people. Activists and honest journalists are often murdered, and the culprits go unpunished. But Mexico is also a society in which masses are waging struggle, often heroic struggle, against all this, including most recently against the brutal oppression of women and the brutal repression by the police. Then think about how the U.S. and Mexico don't just border each other, but are intimately tied together. Think about or learn about the whole history and present-day reality of Mexico struggling under the thumb of U.S. imperialist domination. Think about the 130 million people living in Mexico. Think about the 11 million Mexican immigrants within the U.S. Think about people all over Latin America and all over the world who need to hear the news of revolutionary hope. And think about non-Mexican people within the U.S., constantly barraged by the media and the politicians with anti-Mexican poison, who need to know about this and be one to it. Think about the many people who can be challenged and inspired by this book. And among those many, think about those who can be one to come forward into this revolution. In the chapter of basics entitled Making Revolution, Bob Avakian says this, it is hardly conceivable that there could be a revolution in the U.S. which didn't at some point and in various ways significantly interpenetrate with and have mutual interaction and mutual influence with revolutionary struggles being waged by the people in neighboring countries, especially Central America. And of course, think what it would mean if a revolution actually succeeded or even came close to succeeding in Mexico. And if you can, for even a minute, see the potential embodied in this statement from OCR, you will want to join us in thinking of ways to get this out and get this known among those many who could potentially be very directly touched by this news. So many of whom lead lives of desperation, lives without hope, and so many others who genuinely care about what happens with Mexico and its people. Take initiative yourself and write to us with your ideas about what to do and your experience in doing it. The comrades in Mexico who have come out with this bold and substantive work have studied and applied the new communism brought forward by Bob Avakian, or B.A., to the situation in Mexico. Indeed, they themselves have contributed important theory to the body of work of the new communism that can be read on the website Demarcations. Along with comrades in Iran, Colombia, Afghanistan, and other places, we revolutionary communists are working together in what must be, above all, 
an international struggle to emancipate all of humanity. Internationalism is foundation to communism. That's been so since Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, the founders of communism, issued their call in 1848, workers of the world unite. The Communist Manifesto boldly declared the, that the exploited and oppressed of the world must recognize no boundaries. Instead, they have to see themselves as contingents in a worldwide cause. Today, that movement must be one that aims to uproot all traces of the division between a handful of imperialist oppressor nations and the vast majority of oppressed nations as part of getting to a whole different world beyond borders, beyond armies, and beyond nations themselves. Today, this foundation of communism and internationalism has been qualitatively advanced. That is, it's been brought to a whole deeper level in both theory and basic orientation by the work of Bob Avakian. B.A. has brought forward a new theoretical understanding of what it means for the communist revolution to be fundamentally a world process. Go to Revcom.us this week, not only to get your hands and eyes on revolutionary hope, but to get into both some of the foundational works from B.A. on internationalism and revolution, and some of the statements over the past period from other revolutionary communist forces around the world. All this has been gathered together on the site in easy-to-access panels. Finally, the principal duty of those of us who reside in the U.S. is to make revolution here as part of our contribution to world humanity and to support revolution all around the world. The key to making good on that contribution lies in digging into, not just once, but repeatedly, Bob Avakian's extremely important talk, Something Terrible or Something Truly Emancipating, Profound Crisis, Deepening Divisions, The Looming Possibility of Civil War, and The Revolution That Is Urgently Needed, A Necessary Foundation, A Basic Roadmap for This Revolution. The Comrades in Mexico in their new book, speak powerfully of the potential impact of a revolution in the U.S. on their situation. In a very real way, there are great stakes tied up for world humanity on whether or not we fully recognize and seize on this opportunity. Something terrible or something truly emancipating is the key to fulfilling that solemn responsibility to world humanity. Finally, Bob Avakian and the work he has done does not just belong to people in the U.S. That work, the new communism he's brought forward, is the property of people around the world. And that work is ongoing. But the duty to defend this person, so crucial to the future of humanity, does 
disproportionately fall on those of us living in the belly of this monster. This past summer witnessed a serious escalation in attacks against BA, attacks that appeared in a coordinated manner and stretched across the political spectrum, reaching into major media outlets. We have covered the battle against this on the show, exposing the moral and ideological rot and the political gangsterism at the heart of what these liars and slanderers have been doing. And we've talked about the great danger it poses. We've also begun to show the love that people from a wide range of backgrounds and a wide spectrum of beliefs have for Bob Avakian as part of taking the counteroffensive on this. The statements that were read on this show in the segment done by Pete last week are available as a standalone. Get them out to people, spread the love, and get people to engage and defend BA themselves. And get people to watch and engage this show where we feature the work of BA every week. So again, a salute to the comrades in Mexico and the comrades around the world. And as a fitting salute, we'll close with this from Bob Avakian. There is an urgent need for this new synthesis of communism to be taken up broadly in this society and in the world as a whole. Everywhere, people are questioning why things are the way they are and whether a different world is possible. Everywhere, people are talking about revolution, but have no real understanding of what revolution means, no scientific approach to analyzing and dealing with what they are up against and what needs to be done. Everywhere, people are rising up in rebellion, but are hemmed in, let down, and left to the mercy of murderous oppressors, or misled onto paths which only reinforce, often with barbaric brutality, the enslaving chains of tradition. Everywhere, people need a way out of their desperate conditions, but do not see the source of their suffering and the path forward out of the darkness. After the government is overthrown, would Mexico and Central American countries still be the backyard, or is there also a benefit for these countries? Well, certainly you wouldn't, you know, a new socialist country shouldn't, you know, you're never going to make a revolution if you continue to regard these countries in that kind of way as your backyard and a source of exploitation. So that would have to go as part, not that nobody would cling to those ideas, but in terms of what's prevailing in society, that would have to go right away. You know, that would be a you know, crucial part of making the revolution is, uh, a, you know, a, an internationalist orientation that would be completely opposed to that kind of notion and that kind of approach. Then there are a lot of practical questions. In, in each of these countries, you know, in Mexico, all the countries of, of, you know, Central America, there are different class forces and different social forces. And right now, they're all ruled by exploiting classes who, even as they have contradictions with the dominant U.S capitalist imperialist you know, ruling class in this country also have their own interests as exploiters. And on the other hand, you have the masses of people of different classes and strata who are oppressed in various ways and to varying degrees under the, under the system. Now, 
you know, the masses of people one would expect would be inspired and by and supportive and would you know want in various dimensions to take part in this revolutionary struggle taking place in what you know one thing that's if you notice when you read the constitution for the new socialist uh, republic in north america it continually refers to the former united states of america because the the whole point is we're not just going to have a revolution and say now we have the united states of america except it's socialist instead of capitalist that's why it's called the, the you know the, uh, that's why it's referred to as a socialist republic and you know the, the everything will be up for grabs in this struggle what the boundaries of that country will be will be determined through the course of struggle how much you're able to liberate of the present terri territory of the US from the imperialists what kind of civil war is raging over that question for some time will be a big factor on the terrain and then there is the relationship with uh, you know I mean look as I referred to a large part of Mexico was ripped away you know by in the middle of the 19th century by a predatory war by the US in the first place so there's still remaining questions of history to be settled there. You know, as it says in that constitution, the question of should some of this territory be returned to Mexico? Should, uh, you know, should uh, it remain in the U.S.? But, but you know, or, you know, or, or, you know, but be, uh, you know, have autonomous uh, re regions and zones established there? Or, or, you know, what about the possibility that people who live in that territory would want to form a separate country? And, you know, there's nothing sacred about any of these boundaries, not only of the U.S., but of these other countries, too. I mean, it's not quite, it's not quite as it is in some of these Middle Eastern countries. Someone, you know, uh, who, who uh, works at Revolution Books in New York, if I remember correctly, but anyway... Someone posed a rhetorical question. You know why the boundaries of some of these Middle Eastern countries, like Iraq and so on, are so, are so straight? Answer, because the British imperialists who drew them up had a ruler. <laughs> and you know, and that that reflects something real. You know, like British and you know, French imperialism was contending also. They were the ones that you know determined the the the, the you know the borders and the and the you know the constituencies of this country. And they did much the same thing in large parts of Africa too and other places. So there's nothing sacred about these borders. I mean, look, there are real peoples with real histories, real cultures, real common life. It's not that we all that should be ignored. I'm just saying the borders as such are there's nothing sacred about them. A lot of things will be thrown up for grabs. Masses there will be probably be, you know, with a revolution in the US, it, there'll probably be civil wars in a lot of these other countries. Revolutionary forces fighting against our own ruling classes or what have been their ruling classes as well as fighting against the forces of counter-revolution that are centered in the US. A lot of things are going to be up for grabs. The point is to have an an orientation that's internationalist and that's guided by the fundamental principle of advancing the revolution everywhere we can in line with and to serve the goal of uprooting and abolishing exploitation and oppression ultimately in the world as a whole and in any given time as far as we possibly can in as great a territory as we possibly can. And then you work things out from there on that basis. That's the way this, this kind of thing will be dealt with. And any other principle will lead back to what we have now. And, you know, uh, 
there'll be, there'll be all kinds of forces in the field struggling for all kinds of things, but that has to be our guiding principle. And, you know, and the way we proceed in terms of resolving all this. But as I said in the, in the talk, the, the more that there is revolutionary upheaval in these other countries, the better it will be for everybody. And, you know, as I said just a little while ago, the, the actual reality of a revolutionary, you know, struggle for power in this country cannot help but have a tremendous reverberation in the entire world, but obviously very powerfully in the countries right around, including even, the, you know, the countries to the north, as well as those in Central and the rest of, you know, Latin America and the Caribbean. So that has to be our orientation, and, you, you know, uh, it's, it's, I think, almost inconceivable that a revolutionary struggle of the kind that we're talking about wouldn't unleash all kinds of forces and in these other countries, both negative but also very positive. Okay. All right, that was the voice of Bob Avakian, revolutionary leader, architect of the new communism, speaking in a Q&A that followed his major presentation in 2018 called Why We Need an Actual Revolution and How We Can Really Make Revolution. You are listening to The Michael Slate Show. My name is Sansara Taylor. I'm your guest host. We want to move now right into this first installment of a major interview with Raymond Lada on Biden's infrastructure bill and what it really means for the climate. All right. I want to welcome my friend, comrade, and also an advocate for the new communism and the leadership of Bob Avakian and the co-spokesperson for Revolution Books in New York City to the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show. Raymond Lada, it's good to have you back on our show. Hey, Andy, it's really exciting to be back with you and the RNL audience. All right. So let's get right to it. On our website, Revcom.us, there's an important in-depth article by you and the Revcom Environmental Writing Group with the pithy and clever title, Worse Than Fine Print Trickery, Biden's Imperialist Climate Bill, The Devil Lies in the Big Picture. But I want to start with your inversion of a cliche that the devil is in the details and apply to this bill. You say the devil lies in the big picture. What do you mean by this? What's that big picture? And why is that where the devil lies? The big picture that I'm speaking about is measured against this uh, climate act. It was the Inflation Reduction Act that was passed uh, on August 17th, which has provisions for $370 billion of credits and subsidies to act on the climate crisis, uh, to move towards renewable energy. If that were in fact the case, if this were a, a, a law that was actually going to affect the rapid transition to a green economy, that would be a great thing. But in fact, it is not. This bill is part of the problem. This act, now law, is part of the problem, not the solution. So what is the big picture, Andy? Well, one, it's this enormity of the climate crisis itself, a cascading, accelerating environmental crisis that is endangering the ecosystems of the planet and the livability and the habitability of the planet. For instance, if we look at the Arctic, right now um, it is the case as a result of accelerating global warming that the climate of the Arctic is characterized more by fluid water than by ice. As we speak, there is 
an incredible uh, crisis of flooding in Pakistan. One third, one third of the country now is subjected to floods. 500,000 people have had to flee their homes and villages. You know, this is the state of the planet. 3.3 billion people, Andy, that's 40% of the Earth's population are living in the crosshairs of serious vulnerability to climate crisis. And that means drought, rising sea levels, being forced to flee, the degradation of agriculture. The second aspect is the outsized role of the United States in this crisis. Now, what do I mean by that? It's this, that the United States is the greatest cause of the greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. Greenhouse gases are carbon and methane that trap heat in the atmosphere. And the U.S., which represents 5% of the world's population, is responsible for 25% of the carbon emissions in the atmosphere. So that's the second part of the big picture. The third part of the big picture is the rapidity and scale of measures that must be taken to cope with this crisis before, you know, we cross a threshold in which the planet does become uninhabitable. And the fourth aspect of the big picture is the necessity to make a revolution to actually get rid of, to overthrow this capitalist imperialist system, which is the cause, the driving cause of this climate crisis, a system, capitalism, that's characterized by private competing capitalists that treat nature as just a free input to pour into production for profit and which is despoiling this planet. And the fact that this is not just a far-off, fuzzy prospect, but we are living in a rare time when revolution becomes more possible in this country, the country that is the greatest cause of this atmospheric, environmental, existential crisis. I'd like to just ask you two things. One, briefly define for our audience some of the basic terms here, renewable energy, fossil fuels, uh, global warming, you know. And then in the article, there's uh, there's a, this photograph of, uh, of Pakistan, which you referred to in the flood there, one third of the country underwater. You know, let's break this down for the audience. You know, coal, petroleum and natural gas, they're called fossil fuels, they come from the mineralized remains of plants and animals that lived millions of years ago. They are non-renewable because once burned, they won't be replaced for millions of years or possibly ever. Solar and wind power are forms of renewable energy. You see, they come from sources that are naturally and constantly replenished and don't run out. So the thing about fossil fuels is that when you use them, they emit you know, these greenhouse gases, as I said, and these are methane and carbon that trap heat in the atmosphere and contribute to the rise in global. And this planetary average has risen since the advent of the capitalist, imperialist, industrial revolution, you know, that began in the late 18th century. 
And as I said at the outset, the United States is the greatest historical contributor to the carbon, to these greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And there is a danger point, 1.5 degrees centigrade or Celsius rise in temperatures uh, over what existed in 2005 that presents this existential uh, danger to humanity and to the ecosystems of the planet. Here's the problem that right now the world is on track to producing twice the amount of carbon through the use of fossil fuels that are necessary to avoid getting to that 1.5 or 2.7 degree Fahrenheit tipping point. Now, here's the situation on a global scale, because we're talking about a planetary crisis. You have the advanced capitalist imperialist countries that are the greatest cause of this global warming. But the oppressed countries of the global south are, as you said, suffering the greatest consequences. Look, we started by talking about Pakistan. Pakistan has only contributed 1% to the atmospheric emissions. And yet they, as I said, are on the front lines of this crisis. Or you take Bangladesh. This is a country that has a population that's very concentrated in the coastal areas and the sea levels are rising. And Bangladesh, the average person in Bangladesh emits, contributes half a ton of carbon into the atmosphere each and every year. In the United States, it's 15 tons per person. That's 30 times greater per person on average. And yet, in Bangladesh, hundreds of thousands of people are facing the prospect of having to flee, of having to evacuate because of floods, more, more, more devastating cyclones, storms like um, um, hurricanes in the U.S. So this is what the state of affairs is on this planet right now. And what scientists are saying is that if we are going to move in a way that corresponds to the seriousness of the crisis, we have to slash these carbon emissions rapidly and massively, stop the use of coal and natural gas to generate electricity, and reconfigure the cars, the transport, the whole ways in which people move about and commute, agriculture. All of this has to be rapidly transformed. You look at that scientific prescription, what the scientists are telling us based on the reality of global warming, and you look at this Climate Act, and it is completely out of sync with what I'm describing. So, Raymond, that was very clarifying. And I, I have to say, I was just astounded at the illustration of this in the article about when you, when you spoke of mandates. I hadn't known that. Why don't you break that down for us? Now, this new law, the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the climate law, does not mandate, does not require that industry slash emissions, for instance, it doesn't say that in the next three years, carbon emissions have to be reduced by 50 percent, or that's 
uh, a violation of the act of the law. It doesn't say that. It simply provides industry, private corporate capital with tax benefits and subsidies, financial support uh, to stimulate those industries to adopt um, renewable energy. What I described, you know, solar and wind uh, modes of generating power. So there is no mandate, no requirement that there be cuts in carbon emissions, but there is a mandate. And this is really an amazing, obscene, mind, you know, crippling, you know, phenomenon that the act requires that if the federal government is going to put up for auction land, federal lands and waters like in the Gulf of Mexico or off of Alaska for the use of wind and solar power to build installations, that that provision for land and water for solar and wind power has to be matched by the sale of land and water in the Gulf of Mexico, in Alaska, for drilling oil and natural gas. That is the requirement. And when you look at the numbers here, uh, there's a study that shows that one quarter of all the carbon emissions generated in the United States have been generated in federal lands and waters like the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska. So this law, which is now being hailed as a breakthrough in curbing carbon emissions, is actually saying that if you want solar, there has to be the continuation of oil and natural gas drilling and use. That's the mandate there. So this is really, you know, an astounding, astonishing, and 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 really unconscionable, you know, feature of this act. And I'll just quickly give the second example that this law provides financial incentives for the use of what is called carbon capture and storage, CCS. Now, that sounds really cool, that here we have, you know, carbon that's being emitted into the atmosphere, and there's a technology, carbon capture and storage. What does that mean? It means that, you know, you capture the the, the carbon that's being uh, belched out of the smokestacks of factories or the carbon that's in the ground from the drilling of oil and natural gas, and then you store it. All right, so that is being hailed as a great, as a great move to limit carbon emissions. But here, we look more deeply into the reality of this. The first question is, why is the fossil fuel industry, ExxonMobil, Chevron, why are they so enthusiastic about carbon capture and storage? Well, one, they're heavily invested in it, but why are they heavily invested in it? And here is an amazing fact, Andy, that most of the carbon capture and storage 
is recycled into the further drilling of fossil fuels. What do I mean? They recover this carbon and then they inject that carbon into the ground in order to extract more oil and natural gas. So you have the marquee, you know, the marquee of carbon capture and storage, but this is actually contributing to the further exploration, drilling, and use of fossil fuels. And I want the audience to take careful note. The U.S. economy is a globalized imperialist economy. And you have companies like General Motors, Exxon, Mobil, you have Ford. They invest overseas. And when they build a factory overseas, those factories emit carbon. And they like to set up facilities in third world countries, in countries of the global south, where the restrictions on the emissions of carbon and safety standards and wage standards, where they're super exploiting people, in short, are lax. So they emit more carbon in their overseas operations, especially in the third world. That carbon is not counted as the output of the U.S. economy when they calculate how much the U.S. is responsible for global emissions. That's very powerful, Raymond. I just in closing this first part of the interview, I think we should just, if you could just add in, what is the cost in, in what to the people who live in those countries in the mass of refugees this is going to create? What's, what, what's confronting humanity is a situation where hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, by some projections it may be a billion, will be forced to flee their homelands, their villages, because of floods, more serious and severe storms, the devastation of agriculture. There are now over 100 million refugees on the planet, people that have been forced to flee because of persecution, civil wars, and this climate crisis. This is the state of the world. One of 78 people on this planet is a refugee right now, either within a country forced to flee from one region to another or fleeing across borders. The crisis of the environment, what we're describing, global warming, it is a planetary phenomenon. It knows no boundaries. It knows no borders. But the most devastating effects of it are being felt in the global south. And the U.S. is the greatest cause of historically of this situation. And it's on us to confront this and to make the revolution that is the only way out for humanity. That was Raymond Lada being interviewed by Andy Z, the host of the RNL, the Revolution Nothing Less show. New episodes come out every Thursday night at youtube.com slash therevcoms. I urge you to watch, to subscribe. I'm the co-host of that show. My name is Sansara Taylor, and this has been the Michael Slate Show. I am so happy to have spent the hour with you. I want to thank Gary Baca for engineering. I want to thank Henry Carson for producing. I want to thank the whole RNL, Revolution Nothing Less crew. 
for all their work on many of these segments. And I want to remind you before I close out that the problem is not human nature. It is the nature of the system. Through a real revolution, a better world is possible. I will talk to you next week. Take the mega mountain man leave his home.